Welcome back to Leaders of Color. On today's episode, we are joined by Julius. Julius is a part of the South Asian diaspora, a first-generation immigrant, middle-class, non-binary, queer, fat, and disabled. They share their positionality to stress the voice they speak, first and foremost, their own. They're not a representative for the experiences of all people of color. You can usually find them perfecting their nod in beef and watching lots of Malayali movies. They are currently an elementary school teacher in Toronto, as well as a social justice education master's student at OISI. Their current wanderings are around queerness historically and currently in South Asia, the space between education policy creation and application, and the need for a cross-curricular focus on equity, inclusion, and anti-oppression. For more information, you can check out their website, manifestequity.ca. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. How has your week been? I know it's, well, today's Monday when we're recording, but the news in Canada is not very great right now. The biggest thing in, in the news has been the, the remains of 215 young children found in Kamloops, BC. And so conversations around residential schools and the, the violence that colonialism has had on this land and its people is is very front and center amidst this global pandemic still that we're living in. So how are you feeling? What has been your your experience the past week? I mean, really thinking a lot about those 215 children and it's just heartbreaking to realize that they never made it home and that they never made it back to their communities and just to think about that loss and you know, even for myself to Consider the fact that I'm I'm not Indigenous, and so that even the way I'm feeling that loss is not as profound as as Indigenous communities are. For me, I would say really like this moment is making me think about settler colonialism globally. I know for me, my mind is being really focused on Palestine and Israel right now, and that is a tricky conversation, and. It's interesting to see how the Canadian playbook has influenced so many different settler colonial states. And it's depressing to see how our government is still engaging with these communities in the sense that they're still fighting when it comes to paying out reparations or providing financial aid or really giving reparations where they are due and very well past late. And so I'm feeling a lot of frustration. And when I'm looking at, you know, our global presence, if you want to say, it feels very hypocritical to be Canadian right now because we are causing harm internally, but we're also causing harm externally through our actions in Palestine and Israel with our arms deal there. And then looking at how we're treating Indigenous folks, it's just violence on all ends. Yeah, I definitely feel that. And especially this notion of colonialism crossing borders, literally the the fake borders that it created, particularly what you're saying too about Palestine and then looking at, at what we call Canada. For me, I'm also South African. And so this notion of apartheid across the board, which was influenced by the residential school system, is mm-hmm. just like... There's just so much. And I think it's it's something that we need to acknowledge, especially for the folks who are listening, that it's not an easy time right now. It hasn't been for a while, but but this has been an extra difficult weekend for folks to navigate. Absolutely. And I would I would highly encourage folks to 
check out Harsha Walia's Border and Rule. Mm-hmm. Because that has been a really big part of just challenging my often Canada focus to the exclusion of everything else to try and look at how these things are happening globally, right? And like, I don't, I don't think it's an accident that all these things are happening at the same moment. I don't think it's an accident that there's resistance on all fronts at the same time. And I don't think it's an accident that governments are responding in the same way they have historically, but using the new polish and, you know, resources that they have in this era to continue silencing those narratives. It's deeply concerning. And, you know, in Harsha Walia's book, I think the real message that I took out of it is a need for global citizenship. No matter where we are, we should be advocating for these issues because what's happening across the world has a direct impact on us and the state of our you know, political affairs in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan of Harsha. I have not had a chance to read her book yet, but hopefully will this summer. So that's great to hear that it's been so reflective. You're an educator. And so mm-hmm. I want to get to talking a little bit about the work that you're doing, but also in, in the realm of being an educator and, and being in this space that offering to our audience, I guess, is what I want to say is to self-educate. You can check out organizations like the Assembly of Seven Generations. The platform also has a lot of resources that they've compiled together. First Nations Caring Society also has things that you can look at. And most importantly, you can read the TRC and the recommendations that came out of it. I believe there's 94. And so there's there's things that you can do as quote unquote Canadian, if that's what you want to call yourself, but particularly white people in Canada, particularly Christians in Canada, uh, as somebody who comes from that background and, and recognizing the violence that was constructed was from the churches. There's just, there's a lot of reckoning that people need to do. And not all of it is reconcilable. How do you reconcile this violence? I, I don't know. And so, yeah, I would encourage you as we, as we talk about education today a little bit and, and being educators, that folks reach out and, and self-educate themselves because the resources are there and available. The work has been done. And if you are not aware of, of what's going on, you need to be. So please, please take that upon yourself as a, a call to action for you to do. But I want to get to chatting a little bit about the work that you're doing, Julia. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your organization and what it is that you're doing? So the organization that I'm involved with is Manifest Equity, and it's kind of a pet project of mine. It's really focused towards educators and education work around social justice. And a big part of what I tend to work on is the section on my website called Reflect. And it's really unique because it is a one-on-one opportunity for folks who are struggling to answer those questions and to have those moments of reflection to connect with me one-on-one. And we kind of do the conversation together. I mean, I wouldn't call it counseling, but it's kind of like equity 101 counseling um, or like having a private tutor for equity where we kind of delve into those conversations and we unpack a lot of the discomfort that arises in those conversations. And there's some resources and things that follow afterwards. But I found that it's very much interesting to be in that space with folks and to witness their discomfort. I mean, I know... A lot of social justice work nowadays is really big on, you know, and rightfully so, 
not centering people's comfort. And I think that's a valid stance. However, I also think in those moments where people are confronting their privilege and their power, there's a very real sense of fear. A very real sense of fear because often, at least from what I've observed, folks who hold privilege or power are afraid of the same means of oppression being applied to them. And so it takes a while to kind of have those conversations and break down where that fear response is coming from, how to challenge it, and what narratives to construct to not only question it, but to ensure that questioning it doesn't lead to complacency. Because often I find folks engage in that process of learning and never actually take it to action, never actually get to a protest, never actually get to mutual aid, never actually get to being a co-conspirator. And so that is where I would say the bulk of the work happens. And it's really exciting to see that journey and that growth because it really does resemble a lot of what I do in the classroom, right? It's that light bulb moment and it's a joy to see. Yeah, I think this idea of co-conspirators too, or or like this idea of allyship that goes beyond the performative <laughs> is really important for folks to to understand how do you go about addressing that in the work that you're doing? So um, Reflect is, is a service that I offer. And if you were to take a look on my website, it's I try to write it pretty comedically and I hope folks don't take it too seriously um, where I literally say, like, don't understand how that's racist, frustrated when folks won't share their experiences with you when you want them, tired of receiving pushback when folks won't just expend their emotional labor for free. Um, and literally it essentially provokes people to have to consider what are we asking for folks to provide for free in terms of emotional labor, in terms of their lived experiences, in terms of their stories. And so a lot of times when I'm engaging with people who are new to this work, there is a sense of, oh, if you won't share your story with me, then how can you expect me to care? If you won't be open and welcome me, into this conversation. How do you expect me to care? And so really it's challenging those dialogues and asking folks to pause and reflect on that sense of entitlement to someone's lived experience. Fighting for justice does not mean that we have a right to other people's trauma and suffering. And so I really try to force people to look at firsthand narratives that already exist. And especially when it comes to anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, it looks like letting the conversation go to other people and saying, hey, thank you so much for you know, paying for the service. Here's the person I would recommend you go to instead, and they will be receiving those funds instead. And so I find it's very interesting to see how people break down their own fears and really confront the process. It's as messy as you would imagine. It's as frustrating as you might imagine. And sometimes people aren't ready to have those conversations. I've had clients come in and we start talking and it becomes apparent pretty quickly that they're just not ready. And so it becomes more independent work before they're ready to really continue talking with me or any other person who's doing this work. And so it's a lot of one-on-one emotional work, I would say. And I think that's a component in equity work that people often neglect 
in in favor of you know talking about the theory and talking about the politics and talking about all the intense vocabulary and I and I mean intense in the sense that it's quite new for a lot of people who aren't impacted daily by this work. So it's a lot of breaking down what already exists and it's really interesting to see how people engage with it. For sure. And I want to go back to what you were saying just about having to educate folks and this idea of emotional labor. And it reminds me of, and I'm paraphrasing here, but Audre Lorde talks about how Black and third world people are expected to educate white people as to our humanity. And she goes on to to explain how other folks have to educate other people as well. But this idea that the oppressors maintain their position in order to evade any sort of responsibility for their actions is, is what she's saying. And I find that so daunting sometimes, this idea that we have to educate folks to our humanity in order to be seen as of, of humane value or innate it's value. Ridiculous. Um, it's ridiculous. And I wonder how you navigate that. I mean, for me, that's kind of where the service arose from. I am fairly active on Twitter and I would say 80% of the engagement that I end up receiving is all requests for emotional labor, either to break something down or to explain something or to share my own lived experiences, often with strangers, in ways that I personally don't think are suited for social media in terms of the reductionism that tends to happen in platforms like Twitter, for example. And so I ended up feeling quite frustrated myself and really taking the stance of maybe this is not the space for me and then feeling frustrated because why shouldn't I be here? Simply because of some folks who are deeply involved in their own power and privilege and feel entitled to my own story. And so my response was really creating this reflect feature and telling folks whenever they'd, you know, tweet at me or say something or DM me asking for free labor, well, here's the link. You're welcome to pay and book for my time and I will be in touch with you. You will have my undivided attention for that period of time. And so I noticed it really shifted how people engage with me. There were folks who would get angry and be shocked that I would ask for any payment because apparently as an educator, my labor should always be free. And other folks who would really have to pause and reflect on what they were asking me because when there was a price tag attached to it, you know, I guess because the language of capitalism is so alive and well around us, that it forced them to reconsider what they were really asking me and how much labor, a seemingly simple question, really demands. And so for some folks, it created a moment of pause and reflection. For others, a moment of anger. And for some others, a moment to actually lean into the moment and ask those questions. And I always tell folks, you know, the, the money doesn't really make me any richer. It just goes towards paying for therapy, really. And so it's always very, very amusing to see how different people respond to their power and privilege being challenged in such an indirect way, in my opinion. You mentioned social media, in particular Twitter, being a big part of this, it seems, um, or at least some sort of a foundational place where you've been able to 
amplify yourself. Is this part of what motivated you to start this work with Manifest Equity or how did that come about? Absolutely. I would say social media is a really big part of that. Another part of it is my own experiences as an educator. I experienced a lot. I continue to experience a lot of violence as an educator and often it's um, from the places I would least expect it, to be honest. And I find that it does lead to a lot of self-doubt and a lot of, you know, am I actually doing anything worthwhile by being in the system? Is the system even nurturing me at all? Am I just re-traumatizing myself in this space? And so I find that social media really helps in terms of having a support system and expanding the network of allies and co-conspirators that I have. But it also works to provide me a space to do this work outside of the education system, which is still very much entrenched in white supremacy, settler colonialism, the patriarchy, transphobia, and homophobia. And so it's really been challenging to realize that for some of the, I would say, more challenging or more intensive parts of the work that I would like to do, that that they need to happen outside of the education system because that space is not ready yet for these conversations in the way that they need to happen. And so sometimes that, that tends to be the advice that I really give other folks who are in the same boat as me, which is, you know, you don't have to do everything, all your activism, all your work, all your change making within one space. And sometimes it's incumbent, incumbent upon us to really go beyond that one space and to find the space or create the space that will truly welcome us. You've talked a little bit, uh, perhaps even a little bit indirectly, about some of the challenges that you face doing this work. So thinking of the emotional labor people ask of you and otherwise, but what are some of these core challenges that you do face and how have you gone about navigating them? I think the biggest challenge that I faced is people struggling with the intersections of my identity as someone who is queer, fat, disabled, especially being racialized. I find there isn't a lot of is it preparation that you could say, or awareness that those intersections could exist for someone such as myself. And what I have found really interesting is like the mixed range of responses that I'll receive, some which border on, you know, oh, I see you're becoming so Western, you know, being queer, being so social justice oriented. Whereas on other hand, on the other hand, I'll also hear comments of like, well, this doesn't really happen to brown people. What's going on with you? And so it's always very othering to be told that I fit on neither end of the, you know, the supposed spectrum that I'm on. And it's always interesting to see that like capitalism again continues to be the only measure by which people are valued. And so often I find a lot of the aspects of my identity are reduced to fit the value of where I am. So when I'm in educator spaces, I find often my queerness is amplified because the perception of my race and my queerness as shared aspects of my identity is not 
as common. And so that becomes accentuated within my cultural community, I find my disability and queerness gets to be more accentuated because the combination of the two is definitely framed as co-related. I mean, I was raised in a very Orthodox Christian home. And so unfortunately, the approach towards queerness is very much like the very old DSM. I think, what is it, DSM two or three, where queerness was viewed as a mental health illness. And so it's always been very tricky to have to navigate sometimes what feels like, you know, the 1900s with my family, the early 2000s with my employer, and the current time on social media. And so sometimes it feels like I'm fluctuating between three different eras within my community spaces. And so for me, manifest equity has become a space to kind of unify these different components of myself to try and translate who I am into action in a way that also sustains my well-being and my safety. I definitely resonate with this idea of trying to create a safer space for oneself. That is something that I think so many of us continuously try to do when we're doing anti-oppressive work or, or doing community work in general. You raised something that I wanted to bring up because we just had an event, our first solidarity sessions that you may or may not have seen for May 17th, honoring the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia, amongst other forms of queerphobia. But we talked a lot about this idea that racialized communities, so many still believe that like queerness is a white concept. <laughs> rather than the inverse, right? That like this has existed in in so many of our cultures for so long and was purposefully rooted out in so many ways through colonialism. So I think like I, I just really resonate with the that conversation that we had this past month or, or last past two weeks, I guess. Mm-hmm. That so many people are struggling with that, right? Like this idea that that they are different in their own culture when their culture actually validates who they are. And I think what's really complicated in that too is the intersections of like class and in my particular case, like caste, I would say in India at least in terms of queerness. I won't pretend to be a scholar on all things queer in India, but what I have observed within my own cultural community is how queerness is really represented differently based on class and caste in terms of how for generally upper caste folks, queerness is not often externalized. It's much more subtle in many ways, and it isn't done symbolically through rainbow flags, etc., especially for folks who are still back home. Whereas for folks who are considered lower caste, and again, as much as I disagree with the whole concept of casteism, I'm using it just to explain this, the idea of being queer is a lot more tolerated, at least from my externalizing view, in the sense that there are pride parades now in the province that I'm from in India. And unfortunately, because of the caste dynamics and class dynamics, those parades tend to be predominantly made up of folks who are lower income or of a lower caste. And I find it very interesting to see how queerness is then shifted from being 
quote unquote mental illness to being an issue of class and caste as being of lower standing. And for me, that really speaks volumes in a South Asian context because of how caste and class are framed as like, you know, assigned from birth or Mm -hmm. part of your birthright to be of a certain way. And so it says a lot about how queerness is framed. And I still see narratives of queerness being hidden because families are so worried about those cultural associations. So what I see happening is an evolution of how we reject gender and queerness and sexuality through new forms of oppression. If it's not going to be mental health, then we're going to do it through caste and class, which are extremely big ways of removing someone from certain community spaces in South Asian communities, I would say. And so I find it really interesting and saddening to see that happening. Of course, you know, I'm incredibly privileged to be living in Canada as a queer racialized person. And yet, if I'll be if I'm being honest, I have yet to meet many people from my cultural community who are out as to us LGBTQ folks. And even for myself as someone who's pretty out there, I have really yet to receive any verbal support from my community. And for me, my visibility is a real form of resistance because I'm certain there are, there are folks who are queer, who maybe identify differently in terms of gender, etc. within my community, but who don't feel safe coming out because it does create distance. It does create distance. It creates isolation. And for someone like myself, who is a first-gen immigrant, but came here when I was fairly young, there's the sense of a real intense sense of without my community, I don't have my culture. And so I find that's often where I struggle at least, where because my queerness is not embraced by my culture, it creates a feeling of, is this even valid? Does this actually fit in Mm -hmm. with my culture? Is this like some Western ideology that I'm internalizing Mm -hmm. the way that you described earlier and I've heard many times. And I find that's where we are really confronted with a responsibility to like dig deeper into history. And so for me, like that process of digging deeper into history has been realizing that a lot of queer history in South Asia is heavily coded and secretive in a lot of ways. I remember reading in this one paper about how, and I apologize, I'm, I'm going to mention uh, Sui stuff right now, but I remember reading about how when they would identify lesbian couples in the news by looking at co-suicides, because instead of accepting a fixed proposal or an arranged marriage, young lesbians would commit suicide on like the same weekend, same day as a way of marking their relationship and rejection of the cis-heteronormativity that they were being forced into. And so things like that that are incredibly saddening, when I look back at it, I wonder, like, how many people knew that? How many more deaths have there been in that way? And how many folks have just silently endured cultural expectations to fulfill familial obligations or, you know, ideas of respectability? And so 
a lot of queer history is really, I don't want to say subtle, but just out there in, in, in plain sight. Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty common challenge that a lot of people are facing. So I'm really glad that you're able to share that with folks because this idea again of like things that were forced upon us by colonialism, ideals and norms that that shifted the ways in which our cultures operate are so entrenched in the way currently our communities conduct themselves and the beliefs that we hold and and the way that we view the world or ways that we view the world mm-hmm. and so to to see the impact from like one individual story even I think is is really insightful to to recognizing that and, and bringing that out into the open I think so thank you for sharing that I recognize that there have been challenges at the personal level, obviously, but has there been anything in the past year or two that you've noticed with the pandemic and the way that you've had to shift your work at all? Or have you been able to, with the rise of like social media and being sort of digital savvy, I guess, is is the language that folks use, been able to really use that to your advantage? I find that more often than not, we amidst the violence that exists on social media, because there does exist violence, that it's still been a way for particularly racialized folks and gender diverse folks who are racialized to be able to have a voice in a way that we can amplify ourselves as opposed to like waiting for others to, to amplify us or finding ways to, to make our voices heard that we can own in a way. And I wonder if that has been improved or increased or or even the opposite throughout the pandemic as folks have have had to sit online for like almost all of their day well i'm not sure if my experience is representative of many folks but i would say for myself it's really fluctuated a lot in the beginning of the pandemic i think i was very very active on social media as a way of venting connecting sharing the thoughts that were flying through my head at all hours. And it was really a means of of release, I would say, in a lot of ways from going from suddenly, you know, connecting with everyone to suddenly having no one to hang out with because of the strict isolation. And I would say for the first couple months, I definitely really felt the need to socialize. And that was what brought me to social media. But at this point, especially in the last few months, I've noticed myself just getting a lot quieter. And perhaps this is the beauty of isolation. It kind of forces some introspection. But I really have been left wondering if social media truly gives us a voice is the question that I've been left with. Because of the way algorithms work, the way companies decide what to keep or not keep, and what to remove through one click, you know, like removing every post related to a certain hashtag, for example, or deciding what qualifies as inappropriate conduct on their platforms. And so I've kind of stepped back to kind of question what truly allows me to make my voice heard. And I'll be honest, for me, that has really shifted to looking like community work through mutual aid or just showing up for the folks around me as needed and where possible. It also looks like doing more research, I would say. I really do think the best way to ensure 
that our voices are heard sometimes is to co-opt the ways in which whiteness seeks legitimacy. And I don't think this is the permanent game plan, and I don't think this is a a, a long-term strategy, but I do think sometimes we have to co-opt it to kind of get our message across through research, through policy, through data that's coming across, and to be able to frame equity as a necessity. And often, you know, when in the few moments where I've had a chance to support folks or corporations who are a lot more engaged in capitalism, it's always been much more valuable to be able to express equity in terms of dollars and cents. And it it just gets the point across really quickly where I just say, it's going to cost you more to be bigoted about this than it does to just write that simple message and to actually change your workplace culture to align with this. And so sometimes I do find you have to speak the language of capitalism to get the point across. And doing it selectively allows me to make sure that that does not become my own language and way of communicating value, but it has been interesting to see. In terms of the research and the data, I do genuinely believe that within the construct of whiteness, there is a very strong tendency to ask for, where's the statistic? Where's the research paper? Where's the hard, cold facts? And so often, as much as I I'm a believer in removing the barriers to qualifying information. I do also think there is power and strength in the ability to uplift one's community by recording qualitative data formally, by quantifying the numbers that we're seeing, by ensuring that narratives are not just Twitter threads, but saved historically through research and shared with community in that way. And so that has been a lot of my focus right now. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that it's not an equitable way to do the work, in my opinion, because not everyone has access to research. Not everyone has access to the post-secondary education to do that or to have that qualified or validated. And what is considered official in our society is often heavily skewed to favor those with privilege in terms of class, education, accentism even. So there's a lot of barriers in that way of making one's voice heard, but I find myself turning towards that a little bit more nowadays. Yeah, and I think this idea of being able to navigate the challenge of capitalism in and of itself is something that is really difficult because it is just so all consuming. And I think so often it's easy to get sucked into the narratives that it creates in order for us to like be able to prove our point or to show validity or to show credibility. And I, I have not yet, I think, understood how to, to fully navigate that. So I definitely feel you that it's, it's difficult, but also trying to, to make sure that when you are speaking in those terms to speak to specific people, that it still isn't a reflection of your values as opposed to like, I don't know, trying to understand where other people are coming from, even if I don't. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's literally the number one question that I mentioned in therapy. It's, can I do this work and still be equitable? 
Is it fair? It, you know, how does capitalism almost question my own work mm-hmm. and my own praxis? And so I would say it's an ongoing, like, reflective process and really a question of, like, checking myself, mm-hmm. making sure that, you know, what is my intent? What is my purpose? How am I practicing what I preach and actually, you know, perhaps setting aside a certain percentage of what I own or earn for mutual aid? How Mm -hmm. am I ensuring that, you know, if I work for a certain client who is able to pay me, you know, the higher end of my sliding scale, how do I ensure that money is going towards someone who perhaps isn't able to? Mm -hmm. And really questioning how I use my time Mm -hmm. so that it's not just all self-serving work or Mm -hmm. resume padding. And so it, it really does require... I mean, in a capitalist sense, not looking at it, at it as a cost benefit mm-hmm. and looking at it as where is the work going to be the most meaningful and how do I, you know, allow myself to sustain myself, you know, have a roof over my head and what I need and not just focusing on the what I want. Yeah. And I think it's that intentionality that is a practice, I think, that folks need to have, or at least that I am trying to, to have as well. because. I don't know how else to operate under this sort of system, right? Like how, how do we not succumb to it while trying to tear it down? <laughs> exactly. And I think that's where a lot of folks who are in the middle. And I, I would say I'm, I would describe myself as one of those folks who's in the middle in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, it would be very, very easy for me to tomorrow decide that, you know what, I don't care about equity anymore. I'm going to buy into colonial language. I'm going to be a middle manager now. And I'm going to be that skin folk who's really not kin folk. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think like culturally, that is what a lot of South Asian folks have been set up for. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look at the history of British colonialism, mm-hmm. or look at the divisions created by that historically through education and ideology, culturally, I am predisposed to be someone who maintains white supremacy mm-hmm. and white power. And so I really think to myself, how do I challenge that every day? Mm-hmm. And how do I continue to hold myself accountable? And how do I keep it from being too easy to flip mm-hmm. when it's convenient? Because it's all about choosing to do the work, even when it's not easy, even when it's not convenient. Mm-hmm. And even when it comes at a bit of a cost to do it. Yeah, I, I hear that for sure. And how difficult it can be to, to make those decisions on a daily basis when the world around you is telling you that you don't need to, but we know that we have to in order for the greater good, I guess, but also just because we're trying to dismantle these systems, right? Right. And like, I mean, I don't know if, you've, if you're really active on TikTok, but one of the themes, songs, oh my goodness, I sound old, but <laughs> the I guess the music themes is how is this person describing how, you know, my parents did not oh, God, I saw for, that. Yeah. for me to struggle. Um, and I just think in my head, I'm like, well, did your parents immigrate here for you to like replicate the same oppression they experienced and yeah. made them feel like they had to move here? But also did your parents have the money to immigrate here in the first place? Oh goodness. <laughs> yeah. like- Sorry. <laughs> yes. I think it was right? And and unfortunately, that is the framework in my cultural community mm-hmm. where a lot of people feel that 
they're very, very entitled to replicating the system as it exists Mm -hmm. because that is what their parents struggled for. But we really have to question that, you know, were they struggling for that because they didn't know any better? And if they brought us to this quote unquote land of opportunity where really we're just, you know, benefiting from generational oppression of indigenous folks, Mm -hmm. what are we really saying Mm -hmm. when we're building quote unquote opportunity from that? Mm -hmm. And so it's really a question of like, am I going to continue the settler colonial project in its next phase or am I going to pause and consider how I am a global citizen? And just because my parents immigrated to a different border does not exempt me from that project, which is continuing today. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard for a lot of people to consider that. They kind of separate themselves from their personal history when they immigrate or they consider it as, well, that's my family back home. And I'm sorry, but like with the state of the world and the way we're so globally connected nowadays, I feel like that's absolute BS. <laughs> oh, I I don't disagree. My very first thought when I saw that video, the original one, I was just like, some of us came as refugees and don't have money. Like, yeah, like we didn't all have the 300 grand or whatever the number is that Canada requires you to have to immigrate here. So, you know... <laughs> Like, ridiculous right I mean I don't know it's so bad that I just like have no other reaction other than to laugh like where is where is the critical thinking I don't know but that's whatever it is what it is but I I really hear what you're saying that like this needs to be challenged or narratives like that will just continue right and it's like well it's fine because we have to support our family or it's fine because we have to do xyz but like if our success as these like quote-unquote model minority whatever groups is built on the literal oppression and genocide of other people what like what (laughs) how how is this acceptable right like how on earth are we validating this as a as a way for our cultures to be and to live and to prosper and it just it infuriates me till no end it really does. And, and you know, the conversation I end up having with my dad, who is able to be very anti-Trump, but pro-Modi, uh. is um, <laughs> how does that work for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how does that align in a global citizenship sense? Mm-hmm. And he can't explain it. He can't explain mm-hmm. it. Because I, I really do think it, I mean, it is a part of living in the system in which racialized folks have to essentially enter their workspaces, enter non-community spaces as divorced from their race, Mm -hmm. their racialization. And so for me, that has always been a struggle, like entering the workspace and realizing that I'm no longer allowed to carry myself here Mm -hmm. as a person with brown skin. Mm -hmm. Because if I am truly a person with brown skin, there's a lot of things that will piss me off in this building mm-hmm. that make it unsafe, that make it make my silence really complicity. Mm-hmm. And so I find a lot of people do it out of necessity, but also in my case, because the laws and the policies around their employment mm-hmm. have not changed to meet the realities mm-hmm. of workers today. For example, with education workers, if you look in the Education Act, It talks a lot about how we have a responsibility to maintain certain morality standards around not drinking, around being frugal, 
around oh being religious. Um, and for me, I'm just like, um, okay. Whose morals? Who's right? And it says Judeo-Christian morality. Oh, and, and that is incumbent upon every educator. And so I look at myself, I look at my colleagues who are perhaps not Judeo-Christian, and Judeo-Christian on its own is not a thing. Let me do a disclaimer for folks listening. Judeo-Christian is not a thing. It's literally an Islamophobic term to exclude Muslims from the narrative of Abrahamic traditions. That's all it is. It does not exist. You're hearing this from two South Asian Christians. (laughs) Please take it to heart. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so part of me is just like, so where do I fit in? Because mm-hmm. as a queer person, I've kind of broken several of your rules <laughs> already by virtue of existing. Oh, yeah. As a person of my age who dabbles in the things of my age, I've broken even more of your rules. I just don't know what to say, right? Like the Education Act itself yeah. is oh. so outdated, but it's not being updated because the workforce mm-hmm. is 80% white women. Mm-hmm. And I see it as a replication of you know, the norms that are expected of white women being replicated within the Education Act. But it it really is just a means of silencing Mm -hmm. folks who don't fit that. Because as a brown person who is queer, disabled, fat, and immigrant, I am inherently more political Mm -hmm. than some of my colleagues. Because their lived experience doesn't always require them to be political. Because the politics suit them, right? Like it fits... They get to pick and choose. I don't mm-hmm. have that choice. Mm-hmm. And I find often that like, even just saying the same things when it comes out of my body and my identity, it hits really differently. Mm-hmm. And so the consequences and the risks are much higher in that space. And so I, I'm not saying this to excuse the behavior of folks who, you know, buy into the uh, immigrant dream narrative, mm-hmm. but I do think it requires some conscious effort on our part to really consider how can I utilize this expectation that I will give up everything about myself in order to succeed within mm-hmm. this capitalist construct. And how do I reject that and do some take some resistance? Mm-hmm. Because even for us as as two brown folks, our resistance does not put us in as much risk as our black, indigenous disabled like folks who are really intersecting identities yeah absolutely. In, in a way that is really marginalized even more so mm-hmm. and so yeah i do think we should be doing so much more and it is a small price to pay to not succeed on capitalistic standards of mm-hmm. success mm-hmm. yeah i really i really do feel that just oh so much so much to unpack there that unfortunately we don't have time to dig into but we have talked a lot about the challenges because there's so many of them. But in order to continue pushing ourselves on a regular basis, there always has to be some sort of bright light, I find. Not not BSing it, but, like, but, but otherwise, if everything was just down all the time, I don't know how we function. We have to find some sort of bright spot. Whether that's continuing the challenge, whether it's finding small victories, whether it's being able to just like want to push for for others to have the safety and security that we don't, whatever it may be. But have there been parts of your work that have been fulfilling in that way that have encouraged you to continue doing this? Hmm. I would say the most fulfilling thing is the relationships I build. 
you know, when you struggle with someone, it builds the kind of relationship that really can go through fire because you've struggled together. You've really embraced or had to confront the hopelessness that sometimes occurs in the process. And it really is about learning together. I mean, even in my work, it's really a reflection of my continuous learning journey. And so joy for me looks very different when doing this work. I mean, within a capitalist, you know, white supremacist structure, joy is when you reach the end of the process. And for me, when I think of this work, what is the end to what abolish racism and any of the isms? Oh, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> oh, and how we're going to abolish racism. <laughs> don't you worry. <laughs> but I, just, I just mean that like, it, I, I'm going to be very pragmatic in saying that I don't think that will happen in my lifetime. I think some isms will be more cognizant mm-hmm. of, will be able to address our biases around. But when you look at the world, there's a lot of difference in opinion that is being caused by the silos that we're in. And I do think for me, a sign of success is shifting those around me and creating impact where I'm able to. And Mm -hmm. I truly believe every single person was doing that within their own circle of influence, even if it's just your neighbor and the folks you go to work with that would create a huge impact in the world. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be saving everyone in the world. It's not possible. But if we can affect those within our circle, we can cause a lot of change and really improve the conditions of those around us as well. Mm -hmm. It's, It's the kind of thing that I really stress to folks who I meet during that service that I offer called Reflect. A lot of them tend to be white folks. And, you know, by the time we end our sessions... The conversation really is like, how do I do this? There's so much to do. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. And I really try to stress the fact that it is not about trying to save the world. That is just white saviorism. (laughs) Save the world from the destruction that we cause. (laughs) Yeah, you can't do, you can't create the problem and the solution at once. I mean, lots of folks will try, but you really can't. And so it really is about considering our circle of influence and where can we truly impact folks and I think there's always this pressure within capitalism to be the best to reach the most people to have those high numbers and constant growth and development but sometimes it is as simple as having constant ongoing conversations with the same person and moving the needle a little bit every day mm-hmm. yeah I think that's a great note for us to to start to wrap up on is this idea of being able to do what's in within your control even and I often say like I don't say it to other people but I say it in my head that like if I can teach my apartheid era mother about like problematic things that need to be changed in our cultures and things like that and we can have those discussions why are these people not having like why are white folks not having these dinner conversations right like imagine telling Mm. oppressed peoples that they they too are oppressing. (laughs) It is not an easy conversation to have. Right. And so I'm just like, we have to do it every day. And a lot of us, I think do, but those with the most privilege just like often chill and are like, you know what, it's not our problem. And I think that that attitude really needs to be adjusted. So I hope that people hear that 
Not that there are necessarily white folks listening to this podcast. No, but I, I do think like what, when you describe what you're doing with your mother, that that is an act of love. Oh, for right? sure. And for I sure. Do you think a lot of times we think showing love is by not engaging in those conversations mm-hmm. to protect those around us? But the truth is, is it's kind of like medicine in the sense that sometimes you got to tell the kid to drink the cough syrup, even if it tastes Mm -hmm. bad, because ultimately that is going to make them feel better. And when it comes to white supremacy, I'll be honest, I think the folks who benefit the most are white folks in dismantling white supremacy and white supremacy culture. Oh, yeah, they build whole careers off of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's incredibly freeing to free yourself from white supremacy culture. And so, you know, I always state that I'm like, the person who benefits the most from you being anti-oppressive and anti-racist is you. Because, hey, white person, you get to experience a lot more of the world as it is and not as you're imposing that it must be unconsciously or consciously. And so I think that's that's how I'll leave it at that. <laughs> So what are some of the opportunities that you have available for other folks to get involved in the work that you're doing, particularly young racialized folks? For young racialized folks, I would really say, like, connect with me on social media. I really love hearing the thoughts of young folks. I mean, I wouldn't be an educator if I didn't believe that young folks are brilliant, capable, and really just nuanced, I find, in ways that adults aren't in terms of their directness, but also their heart. In addressing things, I mean... Not that we aren't youth, but we are the older youth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say, like, I mean, I, I, I'm sure, like, older youth are similar, but working with grade eights, like, there's no faster way to get to the truth than mm-hmm. to ask a grade eight a question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I do believe sometimes that as we become adults, we end up having to shield a little bit more of that. And so I really welcome young folks to be open, to speak as you are, and to not filter yourself in any way. I would say for folks who have the dollars and cents, especially for white folks, and you're looking to reflect, you know, check out manifestequity.ca slash reflect to connect with me. And if you're someone with a lot of money, hire me. (laughs) Listen, get paid. I am all here for it. I mean, like, let me come and do the work I love, right? Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Julius, for joining us. Before I let you go, we like to close on my favorite segment, which is called How I Would End Racism, because there's just so much crap in the world. (laughs) And sometimes I just like to go to bed dreaming about how it could all change if we would, I don't know, what would possibly happen. (laughs) But... So as young leaders of color, we're constantly actually trying to reduce the harm that racism has both on ourselves and our communities while we fight to end it. But what if we could do so instantly? What is your best pitch for how you would end racism? My favorite go-to so far has been the Thanos snap, where we just snap our fingers and all the white supremacists disappear and disintegrate (laughs) like that. That is my goal. (laughs) We've had other folks say they want to like whack in a Staples easy button. Or, or just a bunch of things. So what is your wackiest way how you would end racism if you could? Oh my goodness. I'm going to sound really boring. <laughs> I mean, off the top of my head, like the first thing that comes to mind is redistribute the wealth of the 1% to whoever is in the bottom 
Who are you going to appoint to d- redistribute that wealth? Oh, goodness. Definitely not me. <laughs> I'm not a math teacher. <laughs> but obviously, I-, I honestly think the indigenous communities of the land, because I trust them way more than any other person who is a settler in that space to be equitable and just in that process. Like global wide, we could have everybody who's inherently belonging to their territories redistribute. Yeah. I think that would be a wonderful way of even just shifting power because right now capitalism is such a source of quote unquote power in our society. Mm -hmm. And the second way I would probably change it is to really change how we address human rights cases in our current society. We really limit folks to only one aspect of their identity when challenging anything on a human rights level. And we really just need to bring in more mechanisms through the law through policies, through the courts, to allow for intersectionality. Because right now, I mean, let's say for myself, if I had a complaint, I can really only identify myself on one aspect of my identity. And the reality is, is that very few people can be limited to the one aspect of their identity, if anyone really. And so I would love to see the diversity of our identities reflected in the policy and language that is around us amazing thank you so much for joining us julius it was wonderful to talk to you and best of luck with all of the work you're doing with manifest equity thank you so much for having me this has been lovely and i really just admire the work that you and the folks at leading in color are doing and i am always going to be here to cheer you from the sidelines thank you so much